I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter uh, 21. There is, or you should have received, a little green slip on the way in. It's got the sermon outline on it and also the Bible study questions for uh, the coming week. I'm going to read a couple of texts that just prepare for our passage this morning so you can listen, then we'll read together in Acts 21. And the, the Bible says in Acts chapter 8, speaking of the day of Stephen's martyrdom, that a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. In Acts chapter 9, uh, reading verses 1 to 16, with a bit of a break in the middle, it says, When Saul is traveling on his way to Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground. And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. And picking up the story in verse 10, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he's seen a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this mount, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And then in Acts 20, a passage we went spent some time on, in verses 22 to 24, the Bible says, and Paul speaking, And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Now we're going to read Acts chapter 21, uh, reading to verse 14. It says, Now when we had parted from them and had set sail, we ran a straight course to Kos, and on the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we came inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre, for the ship was to unload its cargo there. After looking up the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and, kept, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we left and started on our journey, while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city. After kneeling down the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. Then we boarded the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy's, and after greeting the brothers and sisters, we stayed with them for a day. On the next day, we left and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. And as we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea 
He took, came to us and took Paul's belt and bound his own hands and feet and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. And so Paul replied, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we became quiet, remarking, The will of the Lord be done. Let's pray before we go to the message. Loving Heavenly the Father, this morning we come before you and we cry out to you, O God. We pray again for a special anointing of the Holy Spirit in the preaching of the Word of God. We pray, Father, for the words to speak your message to your people. Father, I pray for boldness to speak the truth, for utterance to be given, for grace to season the words, for love to be the motive in our preaching. Father, I pray that the Spirit of God would open hearts and minds to hear and respond to the message. We pray, Father, this morning for the salvation of the lost, those who are sitting in this room that know not the Savior. Father, we pray that your Spirit would work to make them alive, that they would respond in faith and obedience. Father, we pray for the building up of the saints, the encouragement of the downcast and discouraged. Father, we pray for consolation for those who are grieving for comfort for the afflicted. And Father, we pray for affliction for the comfortable. Father, we pray for a demonstration of the Holy Spirit and power in the preaching of the word of God. And Father, we pray again that the preacher would decrease, but Christ would increase and become our vision. Father, we pray that each of us this morning through the preaching of the word of God would encounter the living God. And we ask you these things, Father, in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I want you to notice, by the way of introduction, the working of God's will in Saul or Paul's recorded life in Acts. He introduces a young man standing, guarding cloaks, and bearing witness to Stephen's shockingly violent martyrdom. Then in the next 13 chapters, we see the departure of Saul of Tarsus from Jerusalem, and the very end, the return of Paul the Apostle to Jerusalem. In Acts 8, Paul, uh, Saul's persecutions had scattered the church planting disciples and he had entered houses of Christians. He dragged Christian men and women out. He'd imprisoned them intending to destroy them for their witness to Christ as Lord and God. In Acts 9, Saul left Jerusalem purposed with finding and binding and returning Christians to Jerusalem and possibly to their death. But the Lord had his own will for Paul or Saul. In Acts 9, Saul was met by Jesus, whom he was persecuting. He was commissioned to bear witness to Christ before Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. And Saul was prepared by the Lord, shown how much he must suffer for Jesus' sake. From Acts chapter 9 to Acts chapter 20, 13 chapters of Paul, who had become known as Sorry, Saul, who had become known as Paul, was busy preaching the glorious gospel of God's grace to Jews and Gentiles. He was teaching and arguing and reasoning for the faith with Jews and Gentiles. And after three missionary journeys and multiple churches planted, he leaves Ephesus in a hurry to get to Jerusalem before Pentecost. And he arrives. 
He enters the homes of Christians he'd once persecuted. Paul, loved by believers, is embraced, and he prays with them and weeps with them. Paul is ready to suffer to die for Christ. What a massive change from the way in which he left. In Acts 21, verses 15 to 17, our passage for next week, Paul arrives in Jerusalem again, once the persecutor, now willing to be persecuted. Once the binder, now willing to be bound. Once determined to cause suffering, now ready to glorify God with his own suffering. Once a proud and zealous Pharisee, separated to the law of God, now a humble and faithful apostle, scarred from his many beatings, separated to the gospel of God. Paul once was on his way, a way which seemed right to him, but its end was death. And God in grace had intervened and changed Paul and shown him his sovereign will for his life. God's will for Paul included faith in God, hope in God, great joy and rejoicing in Christ his Savior and Lord, but it also included great sorrow and tears, suffering and hardship, betrayal and abandonment, shipwreck and chains and imprisonment, and ultimately his own physical death by a Roman sword. His life in submission and obedience to the Lord's will being done would be rewarded with a crown of righteousness and eternal life in the presence of Christ. God in magnificent grace had taken Saul, the enemy of Christ and the gospel, and made him his greatest apostle, his missionary and defender of the faith. And Acts 20 and 21 describes Paul's journey with Luke and others from Miletus to Jerusalem. It's about a thousand kilometers, as I understand it. It describes Paul's meeting with several groups of believers along the way, his encouraging and exhorting the Ephesian elders, his meeting with believers in Tyre and Ptolemies and Caesarea, And in three locations, his readiness to go and suffer in Jerusalem is increasingly challenged and tested. God's will may not be our first choice. It may include difficulty and hardship, unexpected loneliness and isolation. It may mean the loss of a loved one, a hospital room instead of a boardroom, a Bible ministry instead of business success, a call to singleness when everyone else is getting married. But this much we know for sure. Submission and faith and obedience to God's will will bring much grace from God to endure the difficulty. Remember the story of Paul? Three times he asked the Lord to remove that thorn in the fresh. It was part of God's will for him to endure. And he said, my grace is sufficient for you. But how do we know God's will for us? I mean, Paul heard it directly. He, he had visual, visual uh, descriptions given to him in Agabus's object lesson. What about us? How do we know? Does, has God revealed his will for us? And the answer is, yes, he has. Does God test our readiness to obey his will? Yeah, very much so. Is God glorified by our faith-filled submission to do his will? And the answer is absolutely yes, he does. So first of all, I want us to notice the Lord's will revealed. 
In Acts 9, verses 15 and 16, and as Ananias goes to tell Paul about what's going to happen, uh, the Lord reveals to him that he will bear witness to Christ before Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. And Paul must suffer much for Christ at the very beginning of his life of ministry. That was made known to him. We saw that suffering in some of the missionary journeys as he was beaten in one place after another, after another, even being stoned and left for dead. We're going to see more of that suffering in chapters to come. And God has also revealed much of his will for each of us. Consider these verses. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 to 5, the Bible says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 18, Paul writes, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 5, verses 16, or 15 to 17, sorry. He says, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Notice from uh, those nine verses what God has revealed to us of his will. Number one, our sanctification. That's God's will. Our growth in holiness and godliness and Christ-likeness. That's God's will for your life. When you're young, and that was a long time ago for me, I must admit, uh, back in my 20s, you know, it was common. We want to know what God's will for our lives is. We want to know how to understand what, what does he want us to do. And you keep trying to find all kinds of crazy ways to discern the will of God. But you know what's interesting? There's so much that God tells us that's his will for our lives that we could stop focusing on what the unknown and focus on the known. And you know what? As we're going to see in a moment from the scriptures, God shows us in time what is our, his will for our lives. Specifically, how do I know that? I'm not still a carpenter in Canada. I'm a pastor in Australia. That was a big leap. But that was very clearly for us God's will for our lives and being here at Noble Park Baptist. Moving on. Our sanctification, our growth in holiness. His will from our lives as Christians is to abstain from sexual immorality. That is God's will for you. Possessing our vessel in honor, having self-control is God's will for us. Our rejoicing always in the Lord. You say, what's God's will for my life? Are you always rejoicing in the Lord? Well, you know, some days when I find a parking space or when the, my bank account's still well above zero, I'm rejoicing. Hey, rejoice in the Lord always. That's God's will for your life. Praying unceasingly is God's will for our lives. Giving thanks always is God's will. Walking and living as wise people, what does that require? The fear of the Lord. That's God's will. Are making most of our time. Ooh, there's a tough one, isn't it? And all of a sudden, all those hours we spent doing this, you know, with the old remote control, changing channels, surfing the net, and all that kind of stuff. How do we use our time? It's God's will for us to make the most of our time. And those eight items are convicting enough. Are we doing them? That's one thing. We talk about finding God's will. Are we doing what he's shown us? But in all these things, 
When you look to examples from Scripture, Paul gives us a great example. But Jesus is the greatest example of all. The Bible says he was always about his father's business. And Paul goes on to say, our understanding what the will of the Lord is God's will for your life. Say, how? How do I know what God's will for my life is? Well, you know, uh, Paul actually gives us a way to tell that. I'll show you. Romans 12, verse 2. This is what it says. Do not be conformed to this world. That's one thing. Number two, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why would we want to do that? He says, so that you may prove what the will of God is. The word prove also means discern. So how do I find out what God's will for my life is? That's a great question we often want to know. Do the things that God has given you to do. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, uh, striving for godliness, giving thanks always, living and walking in the fear of the Lord as wise people, not foolish, and also daily renewing our minds in the scriptures. And you know what's going to happen? God's going to make it known to you. He'll lay something on your heart so powerfully. I remember, oh, years ago, I think I might have told you the story I was... um, I've been traveling around preaching. I so badly wanted to be a pastor and I wanted to serve the Lord preaching full time. I thought that's what God had called me to do. And I just was wrestling. Is this really what God called me to? I mean, I like preaching. Maybe it's just my, you know, selfish desires. Maybe I want the really easy life of a pastor instead of the hard working out in the cold and wet and snow of a carpenter. That wasn't much fun. That was, uh, I discovered the truth of that quickly. Is that what I want? Is, was, it, was it me? But I, as I was sitting there reading and thinking about this and praying about it, sitting in a ferry lineup, waiting to go across the BC ferries back to the, uh, the island where we lived, off of the mainland, and I was reading a book by Piper, John Piper, on preaching. And he said, if God has put within your heart an overwhelming, irrepressible desire to preach the word of God, woe is you in your heart if you don't preach the gospel. That's a pretty sure way you know that God's called you to preaching. And I almost leaped through the roof of my little little truck and said, yeehaw, hallelujah, there it is. Striving to do what I knew of God's will for my life, renewing my mind daily in Scripture, God had put within my heart an overwhelming desire to do that. And brothers and sisters, I would suggest that God would do the same thing. We start, we make it our purpose in life to do what God has shown us already striving to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, giving thanks, renewing our minds every day in Scripture, and looking to the Lord in prayer. And one day, all of a sudden, there will be a desire in your heart. Uh, You guys remember Hannah that came here before COVID, tall, uh, long black hair? Uh, She went off to an Arabic country, and I don't remember which one, and I don't think she'd want me to tell you if, if I did remember it, because it's in a place where... Uh, Christianity is absolutely illegal. And she now works, she looks Arabic in her, just her makeup and so on. Um, and she's now, she had a desire. And I thought, you know, I've heard of desires to serve the Lord in places like Hawaii or, you know, uh, the Gold Coast. That's a good place to serve the Lord. Any, any workers up there. But where did she have a desire to serve the Lord for? Arabic countries where her testimony for Christ could lose her her head. And she had an overwhelming desire, and she followed the desire. And she's now off in that place. I get little email updates from her 
that self-destruct after about 30 days so no one can find them and find out where she is. She's serving that way. She had desire from the Lord. That's how, one of the ways that we know. Listen, the Lord has revealed his will in so many areas. Are we doing those eight items that God clearly has shown us in Scripture? Perhaps our trouble is we're too busy trying to discover the unknown will of God instead of, instead of simply doing the known will of God, all the while trusting him to show us in his own time. So let's get busy. Let's get busy doing what we know to be God's will. Paul was busy bearing witness to the Gentiles and the Jews everywhere he went. You know the stories? He gets beat up in one place and goes to the next place, and he's still mopping up the blood and, and kind of bandaging up the bruises, and he's busy preaching the gospel again. That's what God gave him to do. He was busy doing it, and God was leading him towards that ultimate thing. But there was a great chapter of his life yet to begin a writing ministry, and we're going to see that in the next couple of weeks and months. The Lord's will is revealed. The Lord's will is also tested. Paul's determination to obey what the Lord had shown him was tested. The two chapters are a long travel account from Ephesus to Jerusalem, punctuated by accounts of Paul's meeting with believers along the way. Those meetings involved repeated attempts to convince Paul not to go to Jerusalem, and they often ended with prayer and weeping. The Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verses 36 to 38, kneeling with him, praying and weeping, having heard they won't see him again. That put pressure on. It's awfully difficult to meet with people and pray with them when they're weeping over which direction you're going even though he knew for a certainty he was doing what God had called him to do. The Tyrians in Acts 21 verses 4 and 5, telling Paul, trying to tell Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem, then kneeling and praying on the beach as they part company. The Caesarean believers in Acts 21 verses 8 to 14, at Philip's house, with his four prophetess daughters and Paul's companions, and they're all begging him not to go to Jerusalem after witnessing Agabus' object lesson and the prediction. And Paul says, why are you doing this? Weeping. And he says, you're breaking my heart, and the, the word there for breaking is shattering my heart. No doubt it put tremendous pressure on him. And Paul knew he knew full well what his future held. It involved sufferings and trials and afflictions for the name of the Lord. From the time of his conversion and from his experience of suffering, he knew what the Lord had called him to do. It was a gift of God to him. That's how he saw it. And to them and us. He even wrote to the Philippians from jail in 1 and verse 29, For to you it has been granted given for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. I want you to notice in our chapter, the words spoken to Paul through the Holy Spirit. Let's give a quick little side note. We all wonder about uh, Philip's four virgin daughters. They're something of an enigma. They're called prophetesses, and yet they are not, they're not recorded speaking and even if they did, their words weren't recorded as scripture. And beyond that, it was necessary for Agabus to travel from Judea to Caesarea to his house to convey God's word to Paul. So we're kind of a bit of a mystery as to who they are and what they did. 
But Agabus, notice him, he prefaced his words with a version of the Old Testament prophetic formula. This is what the Spirit says, which is equivalent to, thus says the Lord. So he is claiming full on to speak for God. And his words are substantially correct. The Jews seize him, not bind so much, and they don't have much choice in delivering Paul to the Romans and the Gentiles. It's the, it's the Romans who effectively rescue Paul from the Jews. But his words are substantially correct. Notice also, back in 21 and verse 4, the Tyrians' words spoken, quote, through the Spirit. They kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Kept telling means that they did so, idea of just pleading and, and repeatedly telling him, don't go to Jerusalem, Paul. You see, everywhere Paul went, there was one of them chasing him down. Don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem. They kept trying to tell him. And the idea one commentator said was, in keeping on trying to tell Paul these things, it's because he wasn't listening. The words, through the Spirit, have caused quite a bit of consternation. What does that mean? How do we understand that? And the commentators, all the ones I have, conservative, evangelical commentators, they all say the same thing. The words are not there as the Holy Spirit's direct speech. So the Tyrians don't say, thus says the Lord, the Spirit says, da 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 They just plead him not to go. And their words are, quote, through the Spirit. And their words are not direct speech, likely as they were warned as Paul had been in 9.16 and 20 and verse 23, their natural human reaction out of love for their friend and their mentor was to try and dissuade him from going to Jerusalem. So the warning the Spirit of God had given them moved them to say, don't go. And you can understand, can't you? He's their friend. He's their mentor. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. They're hearing they're going to lose him. What are they going to do? And the answer is he did not listen to their pleading, having heard and understood the warnings and understanding their motivations in trying to stop him. And so he carried on firmly with what he knew God had called him to do. The Ephesian elders weeping at his departure, the Tyrians pleading with him not to go, the Caesareans and their companions all pleading with Paul, don't go. Paul's readiness to suffer and die was being tested by the Lord. God at times tests us with all sorts of hindrances to doing his will, to allow us to see the nature of our faith, to do that which we are convinced is God's will. In Paul's case, he heard the heartfelt, tearful urging of all of his friends. He heard them as they begged him not to go, and his own heart was broken by their tears. Consider the difficulty. Those trying to stop him included Timothy, Luke, Philip, and Agabus. He's one against so many, and he's holding firm to what God had called him to do. Brothers and sisters in Christ, here is a true thing. God's will is almost never the popular choice. It's true. Numbers 14, remember that? Moses sends 12 spies over to go check out the land. Twelve of them come back. Two of them say, let's go. And ten say, oh, no, 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 this is a mistake. And everybody turns against the two. And Joshua and Caleb stood firm, knowing what God's will was for them to inhabit the land. But they don't go. 
Daniel chapter 1, while all the other captives in Nebuchadnezzar's court are feasting on the king's food and really enjoying his wine, only Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are all saying no. They knew God's will for their food and diet. They trusted in God and they obeyed him and God honored them for it. Daniel 3, while every other person, captive or free, Babylonian or not, is bowing down to Nebuchadnezzar's gold image and bad music, only Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are standing firm and saying, no. They knew God's will regarding idolatry. That's a massive amount of people all bowing down. And, and you know what happens when everybody bows but you? It's tall poppy syndrome, right? You're left standing. Everybody can see. Those three guys, they didn't bow. You know what happened, right? The fiery burning furnace and so on. They knew God's will regarding idolatry. They trusted in God and they obeyed him and they refused to bow down despite the consequences. Daniel 6, while everybody else took a 30-day break from praying to their God, to anyone but Darius the king, only Daniel is recorded as continuing faithfully to pray to the Lord. He knew God's will for his prayer life, and he trusted in God and obeyed him. By the way, he went up on the top, opened his window. You know how they prayed in the old Israel times? They didn't pray like we do. Quietly, they spoke out loud. No wonder they all heard him. And Daniel didn't make one effort to hide what he was doing. He knew he was obeying God, and he followed God, and he trusted God and obeyed him. God's will is almost never the popular choice. Obedience to what we know is God's will will always encounter objections and hindrances, even from well-intentioned and well-informed believers. Obedience to God's will will involve standing alone against the crowd. But James gives us a great promise, a great hope. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial and test. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So how then, how do we persevere? How did Paul stand firm when everybody's saying, don't go? Because that's tough, isn't it? You've been in situations where everybody's going in one direction. You're standing there saying, no, this is the wrong direction. You stand firm. How did he do it? How do we do it? How do we do what Joshua and Caleb did and Daniel and his three friends did? Number one, we believe God's word to us. We hold absolutely secure and firm on the word of God. Paul believed it. Daniel and his company believed it. And Jesus believed it. And he stood firm. He defines the purpose of his suffering in the term. Paul does. He defines his the terms of his suffering in the same terms that Ananias was given when told of Paul's sufferings for the name of the Lord Jesus. He knew for a certainty, he knew what God had told him, that he was going to suffer, and he held firm to it. He held firm to God's word. Secondly, we value the glory of God's name as greater than our own comfort, safety, and security. We saw it back in Acts 20, verses 22 to 24. What did he say? Turn the page. He says, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that chains and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. 
his life was not dear to him. He valued the glory of God's name as greater than his own comfort, safety, and security. All that Paul could have gained by not going to Jerusalem was worthless compared to the knowledge of Christ his Savior that he would gain by joining and sharing in Christ's sufferings. What's he saying in Philippians 3.10? He's writing from jail. His desire is to know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings. He longed to share in what Christ had suffered. He valued the glory of God's name as greater than his own comfort, safety, and security. Thirdly, we fix our eyes on Jesus, as Paul surely did. Hebrews 12, 1 to 3, listen. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. How do we persevere in doing God's will when it's clearly not the popular choice? We hold tight to what the scriptures teach. We value Christ and the knowing of Christ far greater than our own comfort, safety, or security. And we focus fully on Christ and follow where he leads. There's an old t-shirt you used to be able to get. Uh, like one of those. Who, uh, George and Chris love these Christian t-shirts you can buy. This one was kind of cool. It had fish. If you're a fisherman, you love this. They, all the fish are going one way. right? All different pike and cod and salmon are all going the same direction and right in the middle is that little unique christian fist symbol and he's going the other way that's what paul's doing here he's convinced of god's will and he's determined to see it through the lord's will will be done in our lives the lord's will that is revealed to us in his word and through continually renewing our minds in the scriptures the lord's will which were tested as to our willingness and readiness for it and paul was tested and he was determined to carry on thirdly the lord's will which must be accepted notice the text acts 21 verses 13 and 14 paul answered what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart for I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. They've heard the warnings. They've spent time trying and begging and pleading with Paul. And finally, Paul responds the first time he speaks, declaring with emphasis that he is ready, willing, and available immediately not only to be bound, as Agabus had described, but to die for the sake of the name of the Lord. The glory of Christ's name, as always with Paul, is uppermost in Paul's mind. He's ready and willing to glorify his Lord through suffering rather than saving himself. This is not, you know, as, let's read the last couple of verses again. What they say, they became quiet, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. That's not a weird version of Christian fatalism. Whatever happens, happens. That's not what they were doing at all. Don't get that idea. 
It's the outflow of a life of faith in God, trusting God, not only when it's convenient and costs little, but trust in the Lord when it costs everything. It is faith in God based on the certain knowledge that God knows what he is doing and God has his glory and our good firmly in mind, even if it results in our death. Our submission to God, even to dying for Christ, glorifies him above all else. It displays to God, to angels, to demons, to a watching world that allegiance to Christ is of greater value than saving our own life and skin. I think I told you the story. I watched uh, the um, Richard Wormbrand story, um, Prison for Christ, I think it's called. And uh, it's kind of a, it's an acted bit with sort of voiceovers here and there. And one scene is he's in, he's describing a fellow pastor who's in jail. And the poor pastor's chained up to the wall, and they come, the door bursts open, and the soldiers drag a young man in, and it's the pastor's son. And they, they chain his hands and pull his hands up so his feet are just barely touching the ground. And they take clubs and they beat him to death. And halfway through, this poor pastor, going out of his mind, says to them, stop, stop, I'll tell you whatever you want to know. And they pause for a second. And the young man, still conscious, says, no, daddy, no, don't do it. Honor the Lord. Glorify the Lord. Stand firm. That's one of his exact words, but that was the intent of his message. Don't give in. Stand firm for Christ. And the poor pastor, now just about out of his mind completely, and they kept beating until he was dead. And that pastor was never the same, no doubt, eh? What's the point? Even for that young man, he understood that the glory of God and allegiance to Christ was far better than turning aside and saying, if you stop beating me, I'll give you the names. Or if you stop beating me, my dad will give you the names. No, allegiance to Christ was greater. And you know, I tell that story, just as an aside, watching that movie and seeing what he endured and hearing some of the stories of what he endured and suffering for Christ, I was ashamed. I've never been there. I've never had that kind of suffering. Obviously, I've never been in a country like Romania during the communist times. But you know, that's the kind of suffering that the world looks for in a certain sense. That's the kind of suffering that the enemy wants to bring. That's the kind of suffering that God allows his people to endure for the sake of the name of Christ. Paul knew already the kind of fate that awaited him if he carried on, not fate, kind of end that carried on that waited for him if he carried on and he carried on anyway it's faith in god based on a certain knowledge that god knows what he is doing that god has his glory and our good in mind it's our submission to god even to dying for christ that glorifies him above all else what did jesus say he said if anyone wishes to come after me he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Paul understood that. Richard Wormbrand understood that. All those pastors who have died, missionaries, Christians, throughout the centuries of Christian history, understood that more, I think, than we will ever in our situation. 
Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gain the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Acceptance of God's will is, brothers and sisters, the whole message of the Bible. Isn't it? God is absolutely sovereign over all things. The scriptures say that over and over and over again. God has a perfect plan worked out from eternity past to eternity future. The Bible says in Isaiah 14, verse 24, God says, Surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened, and just as I have planned, so it will stand. In Isaiah 46, verse 11, the second part of the verse, he says, Truly, I have spoken Truly, I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely, I will do it. Whatsoever God purposes will come about. The Bible makes it clear. And God being absolutely holy and absolutely good, not only does what he desires, he also does at the very same time that which is holy and right and just and good. Everything he does. 1 Samuel 3.18, right? Eli the priest. Remember the night before? Samuel, and so he gets up, runs over to Eli. You called? No, 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 I didn't call you. Go back to bed. Goes back to bed. Again, Samuel gets up, runs to Eli. You called? No, no, I didn't call. Go back to bed. And then Samuel's slow, but he finally figures it out. Oh, wait a minute. This is God calling Samuel, which must have been a shockingly humbling moment for poor Eli. He's the high priest. And God calls a little boy to speak to him. And God comes and stands beside Samuel's bed and speaks to Samuel and tells him all the things that he's going to do, including the judgment on Eli's son for their sin. And the next morning, Eli, you imagine him, right? He hasn't slept a wink. He's dying to know, what does God say? And Eli goes to Samuel and he says, tell me everything. Poor little Samuel stands there and tells him what's going to happen to his sons. They'll be killed the same day couldn't imagine hearing those nerds those words what Samuel say it is the Lord let him do what seems good to him he understood on a level I don't think any of us can imagine unless you've lost a child like that he understood it for us as believers, accepting God's will requires faith and obedience. Our acceptance of God's will is only real when there is faith and obedience attached to it. Believers accepting God's will and trusting in God glorifies him. Look at the Bible's examples of it. It's Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in case you didn't know. Standing in front of the blazing, fiery furnace, they're refusing to break God's law and bow to an idol, accepting God's will as it appeared to them, trusting in God as they were tied up, picked up, and thrown in. And their faith was vindicated because God delivered them. As Daniel, knowing the decree and its consequences, going to his upper room, pushing open the window, kneeling down in faith, raising his hands to heaven and crying out in prayer for people as he did three times a day without breaking his pattern all the way through. And his faith was vindicated. As Daniel, knowing the decrees, 
submitting to God's will, trusting God to deliver him as he's being lowered into the lion's den and his faith is vindicated as God delivers him. Is Paul steadfastly determined to go to Jerusalem accepting that God's will will include trials and afflictions and suffering and even death, trusting fully in God even though it meant his suffering and his faith was vindicated because God delivered him through a sword blow to eternal glory. Does accepting God's will mean we never pray? Absolutely not. The greatest example of prayerful acceptance of God's will is who? It's not Paul. It's not Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego. It's Jesus. Isn't it great? Our God is so good to us, beloved. He gave us the Lord Jesus as the ultimate example for how we live this life. And because, in some senses, we can't relate because he's perfect. He gave us Paul, who is flawed and sinful and saved, just as we are, as an example right alongside Christ. Not the same level, obviously, but someone we can follow as we see how Paul lived his life for the Lord. But Jesus is our ultimate example. He taught us all to pray in Matthew 6, verses 9 to 10. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. What? Your will be done. And then he went into the garden on that that night. The Bible says he fell on the ground, his face to the ground, and he prayed. I can't imagine the sound of his words as he cried out to his father. My father, if it is possible, let this cup from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. If there was a way to put those phrases over top of each other almost simultaneously, I think that's what it would have sounded like. He knew. He knew beyond anything we can understand because of his omniscience as the son of God, what those hours of abandonment and isolation and loneliness on the cross being made to be sin, even though he knew no sin, that he might set us free from sin. He knew something of what it would be. And in a broken heart, in that sense, he cried out to his father, if there's another way, yet not my will, but yours be done. Prayed for another solution. In Matthew uh, 26, 42, he says, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And the Bible tells us in the book of 1 Peter that he trusted himself to one who judges justly. He entrusted himself. He went to the cross in obedience, in submission, and in faith gave us a perfect example. Jesus knew his Father's will absolutely. Christ was ready, determined, and setting his face as a flint, hardened to go to Jerusalem and there to suffer for his people's sin, for your sin and for mine. Christ heard and resisted the objections from Peter to his suffering and death. And no doubt Peter was motivated very similarly to Paul's friends. He didn't want to see his friend and beloved master suffer like that. But of course he didn't understand. Christ submitted to God's will, to his Father's will, with prayer for another way, yet resolved to obey fully. And Christ perfectly obeyed all the way to a cross. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He did so that he might finish the work 
the Father had given them to do. He came to suffer and die for his people, for you and I. He came to atone for our sin in our place on our Christ, our cross. He came to die that we might live. He came to be a servant and slave that we might be set free. And he calls us all now to repent of sin, to believe the gospel, to deny ourselves, to obey God's revealed will, to trust him as we pick up our cross and follow him. The question remains, beloved, are we doing it? Are we willing to deny ourselves? Not why will, but yours be done. To pick up our cross knowing where it might end. To follow Jesus all the way. You know, it's easy in some senses for us to say, yep, in this comfortable, warm, Western Christianity that we live amongst, it's fairly easy for us to say, yeah, no problem. It's a whole lot different when you're chained up to a bench like Richard Burnbrand that day and as they were beating his feet with a club so his feet never healed, never walked properly again. All he had to do was deny Christ and they would stop. And the movie, the way they portray it, is, is shocking. He was crying, I'm a human like you. Don't you understand? And his voiceover said, in fact, he couldn't understand because they, in removing God from their thinking, they, in a sense, had ceased to be human and had done inhuman things to one another. All he had to do was deny Christ and tell the, the authorities where the rest of the Christians were, and they would stop. But he couldn't do it. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus died on a cross for us to set us free, and he calls us to follow him, to follow in obedience to God's will. Not to belabor the point too much, but listen, we cannot... We cannot claim to be followers of Christ if we steadfastly disobey his word and his will. It's totally contradictory. It just doesn't work. May God help us. May God help us, each of us, to be seeing what God has revealed for us to do in his scriptures and striving every day to do it. May God help us. To be renewing our minds in the scriptures so that we may prove and discern God's will for our lives. May God help us when the resistance comes, because it will, to stand firm on the scripture, knowing what God says, and carrying steadfastly forward in obedience to Christ. And may God help us in those moments, if God wills it that we should suffer our faith, to accept his will with our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus who died for us and showed us how we should suffer and die for him, to follow his example all the way to the end. What an amazing Savior we have. Amen? Amen. I'm going to pray, and then we'll go to the Lord's table. Would you stand with me as we pray together, please? Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we give thanks again this morning for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, again, that scene in the garden 
as he is alone, separated from his friends, by himself, Father, on his knees and probably on his face on the ground, in the absolute agony of his soul, he's crying out to his Father, to you. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but you will. Loving Father, we can read those words and we can grasp the emotional weight of them. We can grasp something of the truth of what they say, but to actually stand there and know what that feels like is is beyond our grasp in many ways. But Father, we cry out to you that Paul, just as Paul did it, so when the time comes for us, so as for many of us the time is already coming, that we will be willing, we'll be ready to say, not my will, but yours be done. That we would accept your will in faith, with prayer, in obedience to you, despite the cost. Oh God, we pray, we cry out to you, O Lord, when persecution and suffering does finally hit our shores and come to our doors, that we would do not we would not do anything to bring shame to the name of the Lord. Father, we plead with you for help in this. Father, we pray that we as as Western Christians living in a free country, living in a place where Christianity is still free to be practiced, as we do this morning. Father, we pray that we would realize the full weight of what it means to follow Christ. Paul knew it, knew something of it. Father, as he was in prison, writing to his friends of Philippians, his desire, he he counted everything as garbage, as rubbish compared to the knowledge of Christ Jesus, his Savior, and he longed to share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Lord, we read words like that and we just... Don't know how to what to do with them. They're so far beyond our experience. Lord, we pray, we plead with you, O God, for help when the time comes to be willing to say alongside of Paul and alongside of those believers at Caesarea, the Lord's will be done. To say with Daniel, we would rather eat vegetables and water than the king's food. To stand there with with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and say, we will not bow and dishonor the Lord. To kneel beside Daniel and lift our hands and pray out loud as he did, knowing that it could mean horribly violent death at the mouths of lions, trusting fully in God. Father, we pray, plead with you for your help, O God. Father, now as we would pause and, Lord, take these communion elements that remind us so powerfully of Jesus who gave his body to be nailed to a cross, who shed his blood willingly that we might be saved. Father, we cry out to you and we give thanks. We praise you, O God, for his obedience and his faith. Father, we pray that as we take those little cups and we drain the juice and we eat the bread, Father, may it be a stark reminder not just of what was given to us to purchase our salvation, but the life to which we are called to live. Oh God, we ask you for these things. 
plead with you for your help. And we give thanks in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.